certainly zero on marketing, right? Like it was less than a million dollars until we, we had the first version of our app. We were issuing the first credit cards. We had a team. This was unheard of, really. Like, you know, in the world, for somebody to grow a financial services business with very little negligible zero customer acquisition cost. So I, I told David many times, I was like, we got to be prepared to make big marketing investments because people, they hate banks. You know, they hate credit cards. But what we realized was people were just ready for an alternative. Like customers had nowhere to go. And, but that type of relationship in which customers are almost like held hostages to your services because they don't have an alternative, they don't end well, right? The first real option that will show up, they're going to jump. Welcome to The Peel, where we explore the world's greatest startup stories. I'm your host, Turner Novak, founder of Nand Capital, the venture capital firm that doesn't hold their customers hostage. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Christina Jankira, the co-founder of Nubank, the largest neobank in Latin America and the world, with more than 80 million customers across Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico. Chris started Nubank in Brazil in 2013, along with co-founders David and Edward, essentially creating the fintech category in LATAM by introducing a no-fee credit card and mobile app to a market that was held hostage by incumbents. From humble beginnings in a small house in Sao Paulo, to being backed by investors like Sequoia, Founders Fund, DST, TCV, Tiger Global, and Warren Buffett, to then going public in December of 2021, which incidentally made Chris Brazil's second self-made female billionaire. We'll talk about the reasons Nubank was able to spend $0 on marketing throughout most of its history, why it took six months to wire its seed round from the US into Brazil, how Nubank thinks about its brand, navigating a near-death experience in the early days, why they waited so long to launch new products and markets, and what happened when the very first transaction on a Nubank card failed to go through, which we actually found and stitched in a video of. This was an incredible conversation, starting with a crash course on the fintech market in Latin America and taking us through every step of the journey, building and scaling the company into and after the IPO. A quick disclosure, I do not own any shares of Nubank at the time of publication, but I may at some point in the future. Nothing discussed in this episode is investment advice, and you should do your own research before investing in any companies mentioned. Thank you, Chris. Let's start the conversation. Chris, how's it going? Pretty well, and you? I'm doing amazing. I'm excited to learn about FinTech and LATAM and story of Nubank. Getting started, can you give us sort of a crash course on FinTech and LATAM? I know you kind of created the category almost, uh, so just kind of give us a deep dive on everything that's going on and get us up to speed. Sure, absolutely. And first, thanks for having me here. So uh, here at Nubank, we operate currently at um, Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia, which are three of the largest economies in Latin America. They represent actually over 60% of Latin's GDP and population. So those are very large countries if you think about the size of the region. And financial services historically has been a huge industry across Latin. You know, I think it's over a trillion dollars market cap, but it has also been extremely concentrated within very few companies. Like every country in Latin America that you would pick, you would find that financial services industry is concentrating like four, five players, maybe six here and there. But it's, it's definitely not a competitive or it wasn't a very competitive market, right? Uh, which led to customers being underserved. Like the reality is that the, 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 the banks, like the financial institutions, they never really had to compete. They never really had to, to be better, you know, and to compete for customers. Why was that? 
customers didn't have much of a choice. They were like, well, if I'm being mistreated by this financial institution or if their products are in the bed, like, where should it go? Because it was kind of the same. Products were all commoditized and, you know, there wasn't much of a differentiation. Uh, at the same time, margins were really high because, again, customers had nowhere else to go. And, and then we, we came in, right? So this was about 10 years ago. We started a company and we launched the, the, the next year. And when we began, it, it was unthinkable, you know. Uh, it was like this industry was a little bit of a sacred cow because you, you kind of saw technology disrupting many other industries, entertainment, hospitality, transportation, but financial services, to your point, like, you, you know, you mentioned that we, we kind of invented a category. Like when we started, the word fintech was not used. Like it wasn't a thing, you know. Uh, but when we try to explain what we were trying to do in Brazil like 10 years ago, people were like, so it's like a bank, but with no branches. They didn't have a frame of reference to even think about the categories. Once we, once we launched and once we started getting traction, people kind of, you know, realized what, like, there's something here, you know, like these guys, they're on to something. So maybe, you know, the, the, uh, we can also do something. So what we saw on these 10 years is that the fintech space has really boomed in Latin America. Like we, we, I, I think we now have over a thousand fintech companies in Brazil and over 500 of them in Mexico. We also saw a lot of inflow of capital into the region. Nubank was the, the, the first investment for a lot of funds that led our rounds like through the years. So if you think about Sequoia, if you think about uh, Founders Fund, TCV, DST, like all those guys, they, they had never, like we had to educate them on on the opportunity in Latin America, what Brazil was about, like what consumers thought, like, you know. So there, there was a lot that changed over these past 10 years. Um, in, in, but it, it was really a, a market that was really ripe for, for disruption because, again, uh, few incumbent players, heavily concentrated, poor customer experience, fat margins in a, po a population that was young, very connected, you know, uh, you know, the Brazil and Mexico are, are really high in terms of uh, the, the the ranks of like social media usage and connectivity and smartphone adoption, right? So all those things kind of made this viable at, at this moment. And I've heard you say before that you think specifically fintech and LATAM is like the biggest opportunity in the world when you just think through like the margin potential, revenue potential, size of the population, that's that's insane. Why is it the biggest in the world? Yeah, I mean, uh, people can look at the problem in different ways. But the way that we think about this is not only, uh, to my previous point, is it already a pretty large market and a very a region that is very populated. Like there's a lot, like we're talking about hundreds of millions of people, uh, you know, in an industry that is already like pretty valuable. But also uh, the, the penetration of banking services or financial services in general is very low. Brazil is probably ahead of the curve, like when you compare it to everyone else in Latin America. But let me let me give you some some references. So when you look at um, bank credit card penetration here in Brazil, we're talking about forty percent of the adult population. In Mexico, that's eleven percent. You know, so it's it's much less. Do you know what we're at in the U.S. Maybe just for as a frame of reference for people. So uh, in the U.S., I think it's it's uh, the penetration is higher than Brazil. I don't know, maybe. 
50, 60%. But Brazil is, is pretty ahead of the curve when we compare to everyone else. And still, there's not only there's an unbanked population, like people that don't have access to financial services, but there's also a lot of people that are underbanked, right? So they have some access, but not to like good or, or competent products. Take Brazil, which is in Latin America, like the most advanced country, right? For, as far as financial services go. We've launched, it's recent, it's early, uh, but we've launched insurance products here in Brazil. Our first insurance product has uh, sold few hundred thousands of policies like very early on. And over 80% of the people that bought it had never had an insurance product before. So we're really talking about expanding the pie, you know, uh, Mexico, for instance. We are now north of 3 million customers for credit cards in Mexico. About half of those had never had a credit card before. So we're really talking about not only taking market share of a highly profitable, highly valuable industry, but also growing the size of the market in the region as we expand access to those products and services. Yeah. And when you talk about expanding access, like if you want to buy a car, typically in the US, you get a loan. If you want to buy a house, you have a loan of some kind. And if you don't have access to that, you can't own a car. You can't get to work. Like you can't have a family maybe if you don't own a home. So it really giving someone access to credit, as long as it's done responsibly, can be a pretty big unlock for somebody's quality of living, in my opinion. No, for sure. It can be very transformational. You're talking about access to uh, to goods and to consumption. But if you think about even entrepreneurship, uh, Latin America is a region where a lot many people are self-employed, they're autonomous workers, and uh, a lot of them have no access to credit whatsoever. Colombia, I believe, is the market in Latin America that has the highest number, the highest percentage of people that are self-employed. It's over 50% of the population. Yeah, I think it's about 54% of the population. The the fact that those people might have, even if those are tiny lines, but that they can use for working capital lines, you know, uh, that can help kick off like lots of like small businesses that can grow and employ other people and generate uh, other, uh, you know, work on consumption opportunities and help the economies also uh, turn and grow. So it can be very transformational. The lack of access, the lack of uh, reliable and, and frankly, like financially efficient savings mechanisms for its population to to do better in terms of access to homes, in terms of aging, in terms of uh, how well they can retire. Uh, so there are so many second and third order implications for these economies. It's something that we're we're very excited about. Maybe we'll get into a little bit more about how you evolved the product roadmap and the suite of offerings that you have over time. But yeah, it's just start with a nice, easy to use product that leads into my next question, the consumers enjoyed. I heard you say something that consumers don't like banks. Do you know why? Like, why do they hate banks? <laughs> Yeah, that that is even a little bit of an understatement. I usually say that they aren't liked anywhere, but they're especially hated, you know, in Latin America. Uh, yeah, when when we first started this, if you were to Google, like, I hate banks, like, that would be, you know, pages and pages of hatred. Uh, they've improved. Let, let me tell you that. Like, for sure, I think the, the the rise of competition, frankly, customers being, for the first time, like, you know, even aware of different possibilities and and of options, of having options, I think has really transformed how the industry thinks about this. But I think it's a combination of uh, many decades of extremely expensive products and service being pushed through them through not great sales practices. I used to work for an incumbent bank. I, I worked for them for five years. And I try to do a lot of change, to drive a lot of change from within a field miserably. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, I'm glad I did, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. But the reality is uh, that there wasn't a need for them to really put customers first because the customers had nowhere to go. And, but that type of relationship in which customers are almost like held hostages to your services because they don't have an alternative, they don't end well, right? Like um, the first real option that will show up, they're going to they're gonna jump. And that's a little bit of what has happened since then. Yeah, I remember seeing, this is a couple of years ago, so it's probably changed a little bit, but I think Brazil had one of the highest interest rate spread. So it's essentially profits for a bank in the world. And then also it was the highest return on equity of any, for banks of, of any country in the world, which is, you know, essentially profitability. Like if you're getting high returns on your equity, it means you have a good business, a high margin business. So for sure. Like when you look at the spreads, like you can debate that because uh, there is a high spread, but there are a lot of there are lots of costs that aren't counted. You know, when you when you calculate that spread uh, related to inefficiencies, to labor costs, to uh, fraud rates, like to uh, taxes, to a bunch of like things that are going to eat away like that spread. But the ROEs, to your point, like they're, they're hard to dispute, right? Like the reality is. This, this has been historically a pretty good business. And that's, that's built largely on customers not having a real choice. You know, related to that, now we're seeing the industry ROEs being compressed through, you know, competition eating away a lot of those margins and then having to, frankly, try harder to, to acquire and keep customers. Yeah. So you said you had a lot of learnings pre-New Bank working at some of these bigger incumbent banks. What were some of the lessons that you learned? Again, I, I don't want to sound, you know, excessively negative about the competition. I think it's it's very hard to be in the position that they're at. No one wakes up every day and goes to work and say, oh, okay, I'm going to treat customers horribly today and I'm, I'm going to sell horrible products. Like nobody does that. Nobody wants that. But, but there are, the reality is that their lives or their companies are full of organizational barriers, of legacy technology, of like... A, a lot of things that get in the way of serving customers much better. A lot of the learnings come from just simplifying everything, making sure that your processes, your organizations are lean, they're agile, they're fast. It's always zero-basing your thinking in terms of the friction that you're creating, the processes that you're creating, so that you don't let things grow and, and you know come back and overwhelm you and, and, and bleed into the customer experience that you're uh, that you're seeing, right? Uh, the other thing is just uh, for us being able to start from scratch, from a technology standpoint, not having to deal with legacy platforms and and things that have been over decades connecting a bunch of like acquired companies through M and A's that were you know potentially poorly uh, connected. Uh, that's a huge advantage, you know, that translates not only in a customer experience advantage, but also in a, a cost advantage. So there's a lot to learn in terms of how to do things differently, especially from the beginning. You know, when you can start like in the, in the right way, I think that takes it a long way. But on top of that, I would say one of the things that we were more intentional about that we spent a lot of time on was making sure that we had the right culture. Like we invested a ton in that in uh, what we wanted to stand for, what we wanted everyone in the bank to, to live by, like the values and the purpose of the company. So I think that that's a pretty powerful North Star for everyone that, that works here uh, to make sure that they're, you know, making good choices and doing the right thing every day. Yeah. You mentioned starting from scratch. I'm interested. The story, starting New Bank. How did you come up with the idea? How did those first couple months go getting everything started? 
I had resigned from my my job at this incumbent bank, determined not to do financial services anymore. I was like, I'm done because I, I, I was just so tainted. I, I was like, well, these guys are supposed to be the best out there. And if my experience was that miserable here, can you imagine going somewhere else? So I was like, I'm good. I'm going to do something else, you know? And I wasn't even going to start a company. But when I met David, so he was coming from the venture capital industry, right? So he had spent the past few years working for Sequoia Capital uh, in Latin America, trying to scout companies to invest on and, and, and try to find someone that was building something truly original. And this was 2012, you know, uh, early 2013. And it was like, well, there's nothing really here because the ecosystem here was mostly like, you know, some some people trying to copycat, you know, what was happening in Europe, what was happening in the U.S., but not really tackling like the big problems, you know, not really building companies that had the potential to to really be transformational. And he was kind of scratching his head, especially why not tackling the financial services opportunity? You know, why? Like, why are we seeing so much disruption, so much innovation coming from other industries, but just not here? And and he decided to leave Sequoia and, and go do that. And we met through a mutual acquaintance and and he was looking by, for someone. So David is in Brazilian, he's Colombian, but he had been in the U.S. for a very long time. He was looking for someone that was local, that knew the industry, knew from within, uh, had management expert, experience, had operating experience. And and that's when we met. I was like, well, but you know, I was determined to do something else. But yeah, what convinced you? Uh, it was just such a great opportunity to prove a lot of people wrong. You know, I couldn't pass on that. So I, I remember thinking, well, if there's someone in this country that could actually execute on this, it would be me. So um, I, at the moment, I, I had a few other offers, and this was by far the less uh, compelling one from a financial standpoint. Like we put money out of our pocket. It took a while before I could even get a you know a salary coming out of this. Uh, but it was just such a big opportunity. I couldn't pass on this. You mentioned, I think it was in another interview, you said it took six months to go from incorporating, getting the bank account set up, getting the money wired into Brazil to be able to pay yourself and you know start operating the company. Why did that take so long? That just seems, that's another really broken problem, it feels like. Yeah, the, not even pay myself, pay the first employees, right? Like pay myself was, it took a little longer. We we bootstrapped or or beginning for sure uh, with our seed money and a lot of our like pocket money. Uh, the reality is like uh, Brazil and Latin, I don't suppose, I wouldn't stipulate that it's different in other Latin American countries, but it's a really hard environment. It's, there's a lot of bureaucracy, like for you to even uh, set up a company, incorporate a company, it takes a while but that was, as hard as that was, wasn't even the biggest hurdle. I think the biggest hurdle was opening the bank account and, and getting the money into the country because there's just a lot of paperwork. The vast majority of banks wouldn't even open an account for a company as young as that. Like, you would need to be two years old to even be able to open an account, which begs the question, how do you get to be two years old if you can't get a bank account before? Uh, so lots of chicken and eggs that we found along the way. Luckily, we're now in the position to solve for that. Uh, Nubank has already become the largest SMEs uh, retail bank, so to speak, in Brazil. We we have over 3 million um, SMEs accounts today here at Nubank, and we make it extremely easy for them to open the account. So that problem for now, you know, for people starting out like we did, we're helping them. Quick plug for the Nubank product. Well, I guess to a level setting then, what was the very, very first product that you kind of launched and went to market with? 
Yeah, the, the the first product was a credit card, like an international MasterCard branded credit card customers. So we started there. There were many advantages to starting with a credit card. One of them was uh, on the regulatory side. So we didn't need uh, any type of financial license back then. Like today, if you were to launch a credit card, you would need. But this was 10 plus years ago. So we, we didn't need a, a specific license from, from the Brazilian Central Bank to do so. But the, that was a, a good argument for that. But it wasn't even the main one. I think one of the main ones is, um, first, credit card is a very fast cycle product in the sense that very quickly you can learn from customer behaviors. You can see spending, you can see uh, payment uh, 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 behavior. You, you can get a lot of data from, from those early cycles in, in credit cards. And also it allows you to, to build trust and to build a brand uh, in a way that is more consistent and efficient, I guess. Because if you think about the deposit side or savings, like, like that's a route that many fintechs in Europe, I guess, took, you know, opening um, uh, an account with a debit card. That requires a lot of trust because, you, you know, customers, they, they need to trust you. Will it be there? Yeah. When they need it, can they get it out? In opposition of a credit card where we're the ones trusting customers, right? Like we're the ones that can, they got the credit risk if they don't pay us. That's a, a faster way for you to build uh, trust and to build a brand. So, so that was very important. And then I think because you came from the incumbent side, you were used to spending a lot of money on marketing to acquire customers. But it sounds like, at least from what I've seen and heard, it was actually the opposite for you. What, why, why was it so much easier for you guys? And why was it so much different from your prior experience? Yeah, that, that was very surprising. Like, this was unheard of, really. Like, you know, in the world for somebody to grow a financial services business with very little negligible zero customer acquisition costs. So I, I told David many times, I was like, you got to be prepared to make big marketing investments because people, they hate banks. You know, they hate credit cards. Like, you know, how are we going to do that? The industry has been historically really a push industry. You needed to make a ton of effort. But what we realized was uh, people were just ready, you know, for an alternative Historically, they had been pushed these bad products so hard that, you know, the minute that some, something good actually showed up, they, they just flocked to it, you know? What we got wrong was, like, we, we didn't realize people were just so ready for this, you know? Like, that, that having a much better product would be that much more efficient in terms of customer acquisition. Yeah, and I think I saw you spent a total of about a million dollars to launch the very first card and get it all scaled up. That's pretty impressive, especially considering there was not a lot of infrastructure. How did you pull that off? Was it just that you didn't have to spend anything on marketing? Certainly zero on marketing, right? Like it was less than a million dollars until we 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 had our like we had the first version of our app. We were issuing the first credit cards. We had a team. I want to say about ten or twelve people back then, all uh, engineers and one designer. Me and my other two co-founders. And that was it. That was the team. I think it was a combination of multiple things. First, we were really scrappy. Like our first office was like this little house. And, and one, one of my co-founders, like he lived upstairs for the better part of a year because he had just gotten to Brazil. He had no home, no family, no nothing. So he just worked all the time. Like we all did. We were just so scrappy. Like we, we, we made every penny count, really, you know, and, and focused all that towards paying you know, engineers and the, the the little stuff that we needed to to get that off the ground, 
And we were just really thoughtful about how to build that business and, and how to maximize our runway because we, we really, it was just so much uncertainty. We, we didn't know if customers were going to care. We didn't know if um, there's going to be money for a Series A, if regulators were going to pull our plug. Like we had no, there was just so much uncertainty, so much risk. And one of the things that we wanted to do was, was de-risk a little bit on the type of runway that we could afford, you know? So we were really mindful of that. Yeah, I think you launched beginning of April 2014. That was the first transaction that I saw. Do you do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was April 1st. We were very excited because we had gone live and we're like, okay, let's, you know, go and use a car. And we went to this uh, a place, like, think about like a, a diner, coffee shop type of situation, but very, like, very simple, like very simple. Place. And it was, you know, about a block away from the little house where we were camped, I guess. And and we're there, like, just, you know, just buying a snack or something, like, just to, just to see if the card would go through. And oh, um, in, embarrassingly enough, the first attempt with the Veach card didn't go through. The second attempt with my card didn't go through. Uh, only the third attempt was one of the engineer's card uh, went through. And, and that was enough like for us to celebrate that day. Like it was very important. It, it, it was one of those one of those stories, you know, like uh, of companies that were just really scrappy, that very humble beginnings. It, it gave us such a sense of accomplishment because we were just so tiny and such a, a team of uh, contrarians like trying to accomplish this huge thing, you know. Uh, compete in this like gigantic industry. It, it was just such a special moment for sure. It's almost like like proving people wrong. Like, hey, you can actually do this. Yeah. Well, uh, it took a while for us to start proving people wrong, but that was a good first step, you know, like going live. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like I can't even imagine those, you know, couple minutes between trying all the cards and you're like, Oh shit. Oh, we have it on video. Don't worry. Oh, do you really? We do. <laughs> it's in Portuguese though. But you can understand. You can you can feel. You can feel the the desperation. So what you're seeing if you're watching video is in the convenience store, very first transaction. First one did not go through. Doing the second one now. Man. Didn't work. Doing the third one now. There we go. They got it. You've said something publicly a couple times that I thought was really interesting. Just raising and signing the Series A was a big hurdle, not only because you were kind of creating this category, new market, you were starting a family at the exact same time. What was that experience like getting that Series A done? Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, like we were really scrappy, like with our seed money. We were really, mind like we have always been extremely respectful of our investors' money. I think over the past 10 years, uh, you, we've seen a lot of startups, I don't want to name it, but that didn't take that seriously. And we didn't want to be uh, one of them. Like we we were always so mindful uh, to this day. Like we're, we're so thoughtful about what feels like excess, what feels like waste. 
it was such a big deal for us to have a product, to have something live, to have a team, you know, to have a, a, the first few thousand customers, which we had by then, you know, by a series A. So it was, it was truly, um, you know, an accomplishment to, to raise our, our first round and it's a coil at that round. And as you mentioned, I was pregnant. So I flew to California with David. I was about seven months pregnant, I believe, uh, on the Series A pitch. It was something to pitch, like, you know. But it was also, you know what, like, it's life happening. And I wanted to have a family, you know, and I, and I got pregnant very, very early on. And, and I, I love my daughter to death. She, she, I, I say that she's Nubank's twin because she, she was born the month that we launched the company because we were in sales mode, right? Like until we had the first few thousand customers, like we were really under the radar. But I signed the Series A papers at the hospital when she, the day after she was born. And we launched the company that, that month because we couldn't be stealth anymore after raising around with Sequoia. It was very challenging, but you know what? Like I have three daughters now. They all were born in, in challenging moments. Uh, Bella, my second daughter, was born um, the, the, the year that we launched Mexico. So I was also like, you know, very pregnant in Mexico, like talking to customers and figuring out what we're going to do there. Uh, and then uh, Anna, my third daughter, she was born shortly after the IPO. Uh, if you've seen any of the IPO photos or footage, you're going to see me eight months pregnant at nine you know, ringing the bell uh, with my daughters in tow, including the one uh, I was pregnant with. So it's it's just life happening. When I started my fund, Banana Capital, my second daughter was a couple months old, and it was it was not a good time, all things considered. But it was just kind of it's life; you got to do it, and wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been a lot of fun. So then. You've got this series. How big was the Series A? It was small. Like I see these companies raising, see like hundred million series. I'm like, what? I think ours was like ten or fifteen, maybe. Like, but it wasn't more than that. It was something like that. Yeah. So you had, we'll say, ten to fifteen million in the bank on the balance sheet. What did you do next? Like, what did the roadmap kind of look like? What were some of the key decisions that you made? Yeah, at that moment, what we what we needed, like we had a product live, like it was a, an MVP type of product, but it was it was live, so it was all about growth, and again, not that traditional type of growth that you buy, right? Like we continued to do very little, if any. Like I don't think we did any marketing after Series A. We continued to rely on lots of like member get member type of situation, like word of mouth flowing and like referral rewards or. No, we never incentivize reward. Like we, it was never a hard incentive. Like people, people are just so amazed by you know or the experience that they would just spontaneously tell uh, their friends and family to come. Uh, so we wanted to be ready for that growth. And in uh, in credit cards, in some other products too, but especially in credit cards, like growth costs you. Not necessarily marketing, but you got to pay to to buy bureau data. You got to pay to issue the card. You got to pay the shipping fee for the card. Like you got to pay a lot of, like there's a lot of upfront costs. So I would say a lot of that money went to, to fund growth, but the cost of growth, not necessarily marketing, and also to fund um, our team's expansion, right? So being able to hire more people, more engineers to continue to improve the product and to continue to scale. That, that was mostly the focus. And then at, at what point did you add kind of the second big product beyond just credit cards? Or was it market expansion that you kind of did next? So one of the things that that philosophically we also differ from, from other startups is 
there's a lot of companies, and this is not a judgment. It's just like very different strategies. There are lots of companies out there. They're, they're just going to launch a bunch of products. They're going to launch a bunch of countries. And they're going to throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks, right? Like it doesn't work out. They'll just shut down. They'll move on to the next thing. So like we didn't want to do that. We wanted to, to earn our right into doing the next thing. So we actually only did credit cards in Brazil for many years, for, I don't know, maybe four or five years until we felt that we had earned the right to do the next thing, which was a savings account. And then we worked really hard to be able to launch that. And then we earned the right to do the next thing, which was the debit card attached to the to the savings account and so on. And and, and that has been your, our thinking. Like we, we don't want to do too many things that jeopardize like the customer experience, the, the, like the bar that we hold to ourselves, you know, in terms of how customers feel. We also want to make sure that we're thoughtful about the process. Like we want to, we want to do fewer things, but do them really well, you know? And the same thing was, uh, the same thing happened about international expansion. We didn't want to rush into doing country number two or three or four or five. Like we've only done two and we're good for now because we want to see them doing really, 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 really well, you know, before we, and they're doing really well. Um, but we want to make sure that we're, we're, you know, well grounded before we, we take on the next thing. And there's so much going on, like Mexican, Colombia, like the next products. And in Brazil still, like there's so much more to grow and to build that let's take one step at a time. So today, what is kind of the product suite? Is it kind of your typical bank or how do you kind of think through the current offerings? So we wanted to cover our bases as, you know, as quickly as we could responsibly, again, like making sure that the experience was held to a high bar. Let's take Brazil, for instance. So in Brazil, currently we have a, an account that is similar to what you would have somewhere else. We have investment products, uh, including fixed income products. We have equities trading, you know, ETFs and so on, investment funds. We have personal loans. We have secured loans. We have credit cards, of course. We have SME accounts. We have credit cards for SMEs. Uh, we have ins some insurance products. So we're, we've been expanding our product portfolio. And Brazil, of course, is the place, the country that we have the wider product portfolio at this stage. But we don't yet have mortgages, for instance, or auto loans, right? Or, or some other more sophisticated insurance products, right? So we don't yet have everything that a bank would, would have. Investment banking, wholesale banking, right? Like, you know, a lot of things that they would do. And I don't know if we're ever going to have, because one of the, I, I think part of staying lean and agile and simple is choosing where you want to play and how. We're also very thoughtful about which verticals do we believe we, we, we are well positioned to compete because we are, we see ourselves as, um, as having a, a significant cost advantage to everyone else, right? So we, we have a meaningful customer acquisition cost advantage for everything that they said. So we acquire customers at a, you know, a fraction of what everyone else does. So that's one. Uh, at this stage, we have a cost of funding almost advantage because we, we have a very large deposit base and, you know, uh, uh, comparable market rates in terms of cost of funding. We have a lower cost of risk because our models in Brazil, they have been evolving very quickly. Our proprietary models, they, they're very sophisticated and they allow us to play at different income brackets at scale with lower delinquency rates than you would see at the market. And we have much lower costs to serve customers because of, you know, how, how simple our processes are, because of how little bureaucracy we have, because how much more efficient our, our tech platforms are and everything else. 
So we want to make sure that we're thoughtful about or, or advantages coming into different verticals or even different countries, you know? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of follow-on questions to everything you just said. Any ways that the pandemic really impacted the business? I mean, we're kind of three, almost, I guess, almost four years in at this point, but were there any big changes or events related to that? Yeah, I think the pandemic was was a big catalyzer uh, that accelerated a lot of the trends that we're already seeing. Let me explain what I mean. So before the pandemic, nobody liked going to a bank branch, you know, sitting and standing there in a line like to make a payment or to figure something out. So that was, that was very inconvenient. But when the pandemic hit, that was not only inconvenient, but it was also unsafe. Yeah, you couldn't do it. It was unsafe and, and frankly, like, impossible sometimes, right? Because, you know, many branches were closed. So people just had to figure out a different way to do things. They had to go digital if they hadn't already. So I think it really accelerated the pace at which uh, technology adoption was happening, you know, for digital banking. Uh, and that certainly, you know, helped us in, in some ways. Uh, growth really accelerated during that period. I think people just got more open-minded, uh, you know, about testing something different. That's one very clear, tangible impact uh, that, that we've seen in that period, for sure. Yeah. And then you went public in 2021, I think I'm remembering right. What was the thinking on going public and what was that process? Like Brazilian company but you're operating in Latin America, going public in the U.S. Can you just kind of take us inside? Sure. So our investor base has always been an international one, right? Like, so our investors from the VC side were all the international funds, right? I've named a few. Uh, DSC, Tiger, Founders Fund, Sequoia, of course, like has always been a big partner. And so like all those guys. So our, our investor base was, was always like that. So uh, for us, it was natural. The type of capital uh, that we're accessing was already international capital. Like, it didn't make sense for us to list locally, period, right? So that was one. Secondly, we always knew that, you know, being a, um, a publicly traded company was in our future because we weren't going to sell the company, you know? So at some point, you got to do liquidity to people. Like, so we, uh, there, there wasn't much of a choice. It was a, really, it wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. And the reality is that 2021 was a, a very, interesting year for that. You know, a lot of stars aligned in terms of how the capital markets were operating, in terms of how the the local, like, you know, how the Brazil operation was doing, how the Mexico operation was doing, like, you know, how the political risk in Latin America was being perceived. So there was a lot to like, a lot of stars aligned for us. And we're very happy that we did, because if you think about it, like we went through like the hardship of 2022, extremely well capitalized, when a lot of companies that hadn't raised capital I had to do either severe down rounds or, you know, frankly, die. So uh, we we were very, part of it is merit, but a lot of, it's just like, we were very lucky about the timing, you know? So we're very happy that we, that we did that. Having said that, if there was a way to stay private for longer, it would have been amazing or forever. Like, you know, there are the occasional costs of becoming a public company. But being financial services, we, for instance, a lot of people talk about the reporting obligations and, you know, opening up your, your numbers and your books. As a financial institution, we kind of already have to do that, you know, in a lot of ways. So I guess that was less of a cost for us in some ways. But when, also, when you talk about just like cost of deposits or funding, or I think generally is a publicly traded 
company, you generally reduce your cost of equity. Like generally speaking, you can access the capital markets, whether it's debt or equity or whatever, it's generally a little bit lower. So again, good to, good to have that going into 2022. Has the approach at Nubank changed at all over the last couple of years just with kind of dramatic changes in interest rates? Not really. You know, the reality, like not, not about the interest rates themselves, right? Like there are second order um, implications of that. So uh, we did see on the macro environment, you know, changes here and there. So you saw like some, you know, delinquency rates go up, like because of like a worse macro here and there. Like, but the reality is like we, we've been at this for a while now, like, you know, 10 plus years in a country, Brazil, that has historically have very high interest rates. That's, that's fair, yeah. Right? Like in very tough macroeconomic environment. So we don't really know what reality looks like for like a smooth <laughs> macroeconomic environment. I guess we were almost, we're almost spoiled in the U.S. where it's usually all really easy and then every once in a while. Up and to the right is, a, is a, the exception, not the rule here. Uh, you mentioned a, a little bit about brand. I'm super curious, how did you come up with and decide Newbank's brand identity and why is it so important? Oh, it's so important. And one of the things that I'm very happy about our story is that I never had to sell David, who's our CEO or, or my other co-founder, Ed, on the importance of building a brand. Like they knew, they knew from the beginning that we needed to build a powerful brand, a, a, a strong consumer brand, a brand that people would be emotionally connected to. Because we talked a lot and we're very intentional about our culture. And our number one value is we want our customers to love us fanatically. That's the brand that we wanted to create. Like that, that's our number one value. That's our strategy ultimately. And we wanted to build a brand that would translate that to customers. We believe that the brand is the way that the culture materializes to customers. So we wanted it to live up to the values that we lived inside and to be a, a, a transparent way through which customers would see us for who we were. And that's where no came from because new in Portuguese means naked. You know, we wanted to be really transparent to customers, really let go of all the complexity of all the smoke mirrors, the lack of uh, transparency of all the of all the complexity that really stands between uh, customers and and them understanding their money, their finances, and 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 having their the, the control of their lives. You know, of their financial lives. So that's where the name came from. We also um, have a, a very unique visual identity. We chose purple, which was something unthinkable for our financial institution back then. Bold color. It was a bold choice, you know. We got teased for it, for sure. But we wanted something that stood out. We wanted something that, that was a statement, you know, love it or hate it, but but people wouldn't be, you know, numb to it or or indifferent to it. And it was a, was a great choice because it really stood out. It really did help people to identify. And, and frankly, like, it, it was so unique, so original that it helped again to build this aura of new and cool, and you know something that people wanted to be a part of. So, so lots of thoughts were put into that, and I believe we made some pretty good choices. So, I've heard you mention before, Newbank was almost shut down by regulatory stuff at some point, or you ran into like a regulatory roadblock that was like an existential threat. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because that is very interesting. Absolutely. So it's, first, it's, it's important to say that it wasn't like regulators wanted to shut us down because we were doing something wrong. It was, it was not of that. Like, 
quite the opposite. Like we, we have always been so thoughtful about the way that we've uh, uh, embraced really like regulation and being compliant. Like we've always, we wanted to be A plus students in that, you know, in that sense. So it was nothing like that. It was a moment a few years ago uh, that, of course, was it was going through a financial crisis, like the country, the executive branch was thinking about what different measures they could take to stimulate the economy. And at some point, somebody was like, well, you know, we might do something to reduce the settlement dates to have better working capital for for retailers, you know, to fund cons- consumption. But that was just such shallow thought because that had such severe implications for the whole chain that is that this credit cards are an extremely complex industry. If you think about uh, consumers, credit card issuers, merchants that are accepting payments and acquirers and, and the networks, like there's so many implications of that. And one of the implications was if they were to, uh, to make that change, not only in the bank, but everyone in the, the sector would need to raise capital infunding overnight in the order of billions. So it was just something unthinkable. That was this existential threat. And we got a hold of this very early, thankfully. And we started, we just started working like crazy. Like we just started articulating uh, with the central bank and the policymakers and, and people in the executive branch and, you know, just having conversations with them about like, do you really understand what you're talking about? Like, do you understand the implications? Like, you're going to shoot yourself in the front because you're going to handicap the industry that's actually making consumption viable, giving customers working capital, you know, for them to consume. So the, there were lots of implications. It was it was a tough moment for sure. You know, luckily we were able to convince them that this was not a good idea and this hasn't been revisited since then because it's really something really tricky to touch. But it, it was tough. It was one of the one of the biggest challenges that, that we've lived through in these 10 years. So was it essentially you just need a certain amount of reserves if you're doing something in credit? Yeah, it's it's not even reserves. So the way that it works in Brazil is uh, customers will, will will pay your or like their credit card bills on average 27 days after they've uh, made the purchase. Issuers pay acquirers about 28 days after the purchase, and then acquirers pay uh, merchants two days, meaning they they get the money. Uh, in 30 days. So if they were to change, the, the change that they wanted to uh, make was uh, for the merchants to get paid in two days, meaning the whole credit card industry would have to have funding, not capital, but funding, like that funding to anticipate the, those uh, funds to merchants much sooner than they would get paid by customers. And that was just money that did not exist anywhere in the system. So immediately, we would have to cut access to credit, to credit cards, like immediately, because no one would be able to fund that. And that was the whole business. That's scary. One other really big question I had was, as Nubank has evolved, new markets, new categories, how have you evolved the org structure going from fairly simple product, probably relatively, you're in a team in a house. Now you're a you know, multinational, global, publicly traded company. How have you evolved and changed the org structure over time? You know, we we have always thought that the structure should serve the company and our customers rather than us being like uh, serving some market. So we, we were always flexible. Like the team and the structure has changed quite a bit over the years. I don't think a year has gone by without like a major change that we've made to adapt to whatever reality we're facing, whatever priorities we have. So the way that we think about this is the structure should adapt 
to the business goals and the priorities that the company has. So we recently made a major change to, to be able to potentialize the impact that we can have on our international expansion. So we recently created uh, global products teams and global platform teams to be able to, and, and then we, we separated an actual Brazil team, which didn't exist. It was all just one team for us to be able to, to as we call internally, platform minds, a lot of the things that we're doing for Brazil so that Mexico and Colombia can, can move much faster. So that, that's a recent change that we just did. And uh, that has really enabled us to, to, to accomplish more uh, with less and faster and better, you know. Uh, but we're always we're always thinking about what what else can we do? Like how differently can we, you know, set up the teams to be able to be more efficient? So it's something very very much alive, and that has evolved quite a bit. Yeah, and speaking of the team, I noticed that all three co-founders are still involved with business. Yeah, contrary to maybe what someone might think, that is very very rare. How did you manage that? I mean, what's the story there? Of course, like there's a big component on all of us just getting along, right? Like nobody, nobody fought, like nobody hates each other, which is a good thing. And we see a lot of those stories. I think all three of us being very committed to doing whatever was right for the company and uh, also being very complementary to each other. So it's a very different skill set when you think about it, like what the three of us brought to the table. All of us being flexible in terms of the different type of roles that we've taken over the years, whatever the company needed us to do. But it is, it is something very unique and, and something that we're proud of for sure. Yeah. How did you change as a leader or executive as the company scaled over time? Any big surprises or things that worked really well for you? I have, of course, grown, like it's been 10 years. So I'm definitely, my hope was like much better <laughs> today than I was when I first started, right? You know, managing a few thousand people today versus no one when we first began, really. There's a lot of learning and growth from that. But I think what, what has helped me through was precisely the, this thinking that I was talking about before. Is just, I think of my role as someone that does whatever the company needs me to do. And sometimes people will say, oh, but who do you answer to? I'm like, to whoever is asking. Like, whoever asks, you know, I'll be answered. As long as you keep that type of a flexibility, you know, you, you stay open-minded and you're willing to grow and to learn. It should be fine. I think you got to watch out for blind spots because when when things go well, the company grows exponentially, but people usually grow linearly. So you got to um, be thoughtful about that. You know, sometimes the scope somebody has has grown so much and as much as they're growing as leaders, they might not grow at the same pace. So you might need you know, to adjust, to be able to continue moving, you know, as fast as you can. So yeah, it's, it's, it's something to watch out for, for sure. Yeah, definitely something to watch out for. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Turner. This has been a great conversation. I hope this was useful for your audience. And, and maybe we can do this again some other time, make up some more topics. So what do you think? Should we have Chris back for part two? Let me know. If you don't want to miss future episodes, subscribe to the newsletter, The Split, in the show notes. If you want to support the show, the best ways are to leave a review wherever you're listening, like, comment, subscribe, follow, retweet, and share with a friend who lives in Brazil, Colombia, or Mexico that's still paying high fees on their credit card. Thank you to Chris for coming on, and to you for tuning in. See you next time.